Between Europe and the Middle East, there was always a special relationship. They shared the common geography and humanity of the Mediterranean, and through history, their influence on each other was constant and lasting. In medieval times, Islam was Europe's only powerful cultural and human challenge. Where Europe was not surrounded by water, it was surrounded by Islam. Europe conquered the oceans, the Americas, India, long before it was able to subdue the Muslims. By the 19th century, the kind of power which the Industrial Revolution created allowed the Europeans to influence the whole Earth, and rapidly. More than at any other time in history, no society had the protection of distance or time to adjust. And for good and ill, all peoples, economies, and governments became subject to the same complex set of forces. Beginning with Algeria in 1830, most Arab countries fell under the direct control of France and England. And by the end of the First World War, only the Arabian Peninsula itself remained free. But the age of European empire ended after the Second World War. Sooner or later, all Arab countries gained independence, all except Palestine. British rule and American support had encouraged the creation of a Jewish national home. Today, for the Jews who settled in Palestine and founded the state of Israel, the land is theirs. For the Palestinian Arabs dispossessed or else living under Israeli rule, it is theirs also. It is this conflict which keeps alive for Arabs the sense of living under the shadow of the West. Edward Said understands that well. He was born in Jerusalem, and for 30 years he has lived in America. East, a place of fantasy, imagination, desire. This Orient has been created by the West, by artists, thinkers, dreamers, and adventurers. It gives fantastic expression to some reality that Europeans either wanted to possess or feared. Fabulous names, Harun al-Rashid, Amar Khayyam, Shahrazad. Fabulous places, Samarkand, Arabia Felix, Jerusalem the Golden. The lure of Jerusalem is uniquely powerful. It evokes the idea of the fabulous Orient, but it is also of the deepest significance to Muslims, Jews, and Christians. So strangers are drawn to Jerusalem the Golden, the Jerusalem of the Holy Land, to sing their songs of it, see its sights, sample its wares, savor its mystery. One, take pictures. Yeah, yeah. Come on, Kojak. One, two, three. Kojak, come on. Harry, one. That's the English Kojak. Want to go to school? Oh, my God. Oh, I'm afraid. I'm holding your hand. It is OK. Bring me a parachute. Wah, wah, wah. I love you.
The tourists come with their own thoughts of this place, their own concerns. They see, but they do not comprehend. Insulated from the hard political facts, the conflicts of interest, visitors cannot see how involved they are in what appears to be foreign and distant. Israel captured Jerusalem in 1967 and claimed to have unified it forever. In fact, Jerusalem is a deeply divided city. The Palestinian Arabs are subject to Israeli military rule. More than a million Palestinians live under Israeli occupation in East Jerusalem, the West Bank, and Gaza. About 650,000 more are citizens of the Jewish state. The lives of all of them are directly affected by the affliction of being a subject people, strangers in their own land. In East Jerusalem, they are helpless dwellers in what has been made an Arab ghetto at the heart of the Jewish state. This war between peoples, a war which has been fought for generations and which concerns the whole world, is, I believe, inextricably entangled with the fantasies, dreams, and ambitions of the West to rule and possess the East. To some extent, the state of Israel itself has been created and sustained by those fantasies, dreams, and ambitions. I was born in Jerusalem when it was part of a country called Palestine. By 1948, when Palestine became Israel, all my family had left. My birthplace is now inaccessible to me. For many hundreds of thousands of my fellow Palestinians, their native towns, villages, farms, are inaccessible to them. Channel 62, Detroit. Some of us found ourselves in America, adding to the chorus of ethnic voices absorbed into American life. Good evening and welcome to the Arab Voice TV program. Before we start, I would like to wish all of you a happy Valentine's Day. And now here is the outline of our program in Arabic. All the Arabs who come to America come in different ways, of course, under different pressures. All of us, however, attempt to rediscover and reestablish our identities. In Detroit, for example, the native places live on in social clubs and community events. People who came to America from Beit Hanina, a suburb of Jerusalem, sustain their community, keep it alive, both culturally and politically.
Some people in exile move closer to what they perceive as American ways. Yet the ironies of exile represent themselves. Affluent Palestinians in Detroit celebrate in style by enjoying images of the Orient. But not the Orient of their memory or of their reality, rather the exotic images of Western imagination. The fabled harem dance is performed by a Mexican girl born in Detroit. presides over a gallery of characters who embody the Orient. Mysterious, seductive, sensual, and cruel. Usually, the Arab is represented as the other, deviant or excessive, less trustworthy, less human. One important function of these images is, I believe, that they justify the use of Western power to seek control over the East and to possess its riches. Frankly, I spend a great deal of my time being angry. I mean, wherever you turn, you read a bit of the newspaper or you see on television, you know, the fact that we're, we're never described in, or rarely described in ways that, 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 that you can, not, it's not a question of identifying with it, in ways that don't offend you. The, and for us as Palestinians, yeah. obviously we have a greater challenge yeah. in this society, which is hostile to our, yeah, because there's our a, history, yeah. as well as our, to, uh, to, to our reality yes. and to our aspirations. Yeah. And so that there's the general problem of right, being an Arab, an but Arab, there's a particular problem of being a Palestinian. Being Palestinian. Yeah. And this has created, of course, uh, uh, severe contradictions for all of us. I came in 1950. And I lived in the Midwest at that time. Uh, and when people asked me where I come from, I said, I come from Palestine. And for them, they, they had two connections with Palestine. Uh, one connection is that it is the Holy Land, mm. and therefore images of old prophets and Christianity and so forth. Yeah. Or that I come from a place which is now known as Israel. Yeah. My identity, in that sense, was a, a neither understood nor accepted as someone who is not biblical and someone who is not Israeli. And yeah, it's strange how insistent that is because, I mean, historically that's really been the case starting with the Crusades. I mean, if you think about it, the, the Crusades had absolutely nothing to do, in a sense, with the people who were there, except, as you said, that they were non-Christian. Right. And they were the people who were in possession of Christian places that were thought of as European in some strange way. And that began this extraordinary, to me, somewhat irrational uh, movement where people said, well, that's our land, it's the Holy Land, it belongs to Europe and Christianity, let's go and get it. <laughs> Each year, during Holy Week, the power of the idea of the Holy Land is made apparent. Pilgrims from all over the world join the native Christians of Jerusalem and engulf the old city in their journey to the Holy Sepulchre.
But in other times, the power of this idea moved armies and whole nations. Nine hundred years ago, Christian Europe decided to reclaim the Holy Land, Western Christianity's Holy Land, from the Saracen Muslims. The Crusaders set up fiefdoms and kingdoms all over the Eastern Mediterranean. Most of these European Crusaders left after a time, but impressive evidence of their invasions remains. The landscape is still dominated by Crusader redoubts, and they are fought over once again in what seems to be an endless sequence of violence and counter-violence. In 1190, the Frankish castle of Beaufort fell to Saladin. Between 1978 and 1982, it was a frontline position for Palestinian guerrillas in Lebanon. From the heights of Beaufort, they could look toward their Palestine. ففي قلعة الشقيف انطلقت جحافل الفتح العربي الإسلامي لتحرير الأراضي الفلسطينية من الصليبيين إضافة إلى أنها لأن موقع القلعة يعتبر موقع استراتيجي وحيوي من الناحية السياسية والمعنوية بالنسبة للثورة الفلسطينية ويعتبر موقع عسكري مهم أيضا بالنسبة للعدو الصهيوني It is good land in this region, but no farmer today can harvest this land in peace. Farmers in the shadow of Beaufort have lived with the fire of aircraft, tanks, and artillery for more than a decade. In 1982, the Israelis moved into Lebanon and took Beaufort for themselves. Why I'm here? It's a, they told me that I must be here with my soldiers. This is the reason I'm here. I want to be home. I think this place belongs to the people here. No, me and my soldiers want to be here. But it's important, very important. From here, you can see the sea and the north of uh, Lebanon. So it's important that we'll sit here and watch and look. I believe, like I am an Israeli and I am a Zionist, that uh, we belong to this area. We didn't live from a long time, but we belong from here. There are uh, a Bible, we are in it, and we belong to this part. We don't need all the part. Where you, what you have now, what we have now, is enough for us. And I think that this, there are another people that want to to live in this area. Okay, I want to live. I want to live in peace. I didn't want to to fight for for this country. I think that this is the heart of all the problem here in the Middle East. You see, I think that all the time that the Palestinians have a home, uh, a really place and it's my personal opinion, there will be problems here. I think this is the heart of the problem. We must resolve this problem. I think that they have the same right 
to a land and to the place like me. Within days of the capture of Beaufort from its handful of defenders, the first tourists arrived. Jews from Europe, America, and South Africa who had supported the Israeli invasion of Lebanon with their fundraising. The significance of this place is very similar to the Golden Heights. Here's a place from which they shelled all these villages over the years. Here's a place that looked almost insurmountable, and yet they took it almost with a frontal attack, with a lot of loss, but it's just indicative of the kind of spirit the Israelis have when the times necessary, they rise to it. And it's a very exciting thing. This was the uh, fortress of the terrorists used to attack the settlements of Israel and cause havoc and damage to as much as they could uh, within the Israel territory. That's what it means to me. I come from Philadelphia. And I believe the Palestinians will have to find refuge in some of the Arab countries where they have plenty of room, they need plenty of help. As a matter of fact, there are, what, a couple million Palestinians in different countries now with their families and all, and they're well used and well integrated into the communities. And I think they've got to do more. The whole Arab world is a big world. And if that's where the Palestinians seek to go, that's where they belong. A man from Philadelphia simply decides on his own that native Arab Palestinians should be left in permanent exile. He claims more rights to this land than the people who were born on it. What are the consequences when such ideas are turned into action? During the Israeli invasion of Lebanon in 1982, thousands of Lebanese and Palestinians were killed or made homeless in a country already violently fragmented. When the fighting is over, the distortions in ordinary lives remain.
The devastation of 1982 had its precedence in 1973, 1967, 1956, 1948, and back in time to all those periods when people looked at this part of the world with visions of what they believed ought to be here. So why does this latest cycle of violence and displacement continue? How did it come about? The answer, I believe, can be found in the history of the past two centuries, in the history of the modern West, in its dealings with the Orient. It is a history which Napoleon's arrival in the region perfectly symbolizes. Here was the representative of Europe's astonishing concentration of power, unprecedented in the world's history, going out to make the Orient an annex of Europe. France came to conquer Egypt and the Orient in 1798. To Napoleon, Egypt was a place that had witnessed Alexander, Pompey, Mark Antony and Augustus deciding between them the fate of the entire world. It was therefore proper for Egypt to attract the attention of illustrious princes who rule the destiny of nations. Although Napoleon's stay in the Orient was short, it was a precursor of momentous events. In 1830, the French made Algeria their own and dominated most of North Africa. Later, the Italians took Libya. The British fought for and consolidated their hold over Egypt, Sudan, and the Arabian Gulf. Under the protection of the imperial powers traveled adventurers, scholars, and artists. Some produced the fantastic and exotic images which fed the fears and fantasies of the West. Others came to record, to learn, to understand. With accuracy and sympathy, they tried to describe what they saw, societies and peoples possessing a history and a culture of their own. Some Europeans seemed to take their sympathy as far as identifying with the Arabs and taking their side in conflict. The most famous of these was T.E. Lawrence, Lawrence of Arabia, who managed to evoke for his compatriots the mystic heroism of the British Empire and the Arabian Desert. He involved himself in the Arab revolt against the Ottoman Turks, who dominated the region at that time. He thus gave his active support to one of the many movements of national resistance against the control of empire, whether Turkish or European. But the victories Lawrence helped organize ultimately secured the Arabian heartland for the British and French. After the Turks were defeated in 1917, the Europeans moved in. Britain and France created a new map dividing this region into protectorates, mandates, and spheres of influence. The names of the officials who first drew that map, Mark Sykes and Georges Picot, still resound throughout the Arab world. It is the map which essentially endures today, with one exception, the country of Palestine. In 1917, Arthur James Balfour stood at the pinnacle of the British imperial establishment. Shortly after Sykes and Picot drew their map, he wrote a letter that was to become famous as the Balfour Declaration. In it, he promised a Jewish homeland in Palestine, although he added that this homeland should not conflict with the rights of the native inhabitants. Nevertheless, the native inhabitants saw their land promised to another people. Zionism, Jewish nationalism, was no longer simply an idea. It had become a practical possibility and an accelerating process. Fired by the terrors of fascism in Europe, the Jewish immigrant population in Palestine grew dramatically. As a consequence of the war of 1948, 
between Zionists and Arabs, Israel was created. Palestine, the homeland of one and a half million people, simply disappeared. 800,000 people were made refugees. The Palestinian problem, in its full dress contemporary form, was born. The Sykes-Picot Agreement and the Balfour Declaration yes. probably have done more damage to the Arab world in the long run yes. than any previous encounter with Europe. The interesting thing, though, was a sense that this mm -hmm. was part of Europe. That's right. That Europe has the right, because it's, it's really our... Yeah. Sure. And there's a famous comment that Balfour makes where he says that, um, you know, it, it doesn't really matter what the 600,000 right. native inhabitants of Palestine... Yeah, <laughs> it doesn't really matter what they right. think because we know what's important. Right. And Zionism, it was interesting, and he identifies Zionism uh -huh. with Europe. That's right. Yeah. Well, it is, it is European in, in uh, several different senses of the term. One, of course, it, it aspires to transform for them yeah. the Holy Land, so yeah. it's the old idea. Yeah. Second, it is made up of Europeans uh, imbued with European ideology. And third, it is going to be in position to facilitate the perpetual control of European imperialism in the Middle East. So it is an, a surrogate of European power. European and, and American, and American right, power, of course, as America assumed yeah. that leadership. And I think this is the problem that we live uh, with today. Yeah. But uh, what, what's important to understand, I think, is how they did it. Uh, I think there was a, a great deal of deliberate misunderstanding in the West. Yes. And some of it is obviously deliberate also to, to distort the reality. Yeah. But I think the, the greatest weakness... You mean what, what, by misunderstanding what? You mean to portray... First of all, right. to portray the Arabs as not there, perhaps. They are not there. They are backward. They, uh, to deny them their cultural identity and the potential for, yes. for development. Yes. Uh, uh, so in that sense, I think there was a deliberate hmm. effort to denude and to, to make it possible to sell the idea of Zionism to Europe, to, Europe. to the European So public. that w the way the Orientalist uh, painters, they would depict right. it in a romantic and exotic way, right. Uh, the Zionists were depicted as empty and right. a desert, Which and they, they made the desert blue. It is the dawning of a new age. We are witnessing a new phenomenon among our people. Jewish pioneers, farmers, laborers, young men and women from the cities of Europe eager to undertake any kind of physical work, however primitive, as long as it helps lay the foundation of our national home. Zionist films, past and present, imply that the Arab can be disregarded and his country is barren. Another fantasy generated to justify conquest. But just a few miles from Israel's border with Lebanon, the lie is given to the myth of Arab neglect of a barren land. This whole region of the Eastern Mediterranean is rich and green. The fruit is abundant. The owners of these orange groves are Lebanese. The workers are Palestinians from a nearby refugee camp. In the camps of South Lebanon, refugees from the villages of the Galilee have reconstructed the lives that they left behind and have held on to their memories. كلكم 
لك انت ببيتك؟ بنفس البيت هون؟ شيء 16 سنه 16 سنه وما بتحسي انه بيتك؟ لا مش بيت لا لا مش بيت مش ملكه لا ارضي مش ملكه مش ملكه لا مش ملكي ولا ارضي مش انا بيتي بيتي فلسطين وارضي فلسطين ما في لي هذا الملك لاصحابه عشر سنين أكثر شيء طلعت من فلسطين. بتذكر كانت كولونية إسرائيل حجنا. إحنا البنات نعيش عايشين مع بعض ومبسوطين ويروح لعنا وبنجي لعندهن وبناكل سوا. أنت تعرفي أنت يهودية؟ أي والله. والله وحدة اسمها أنا بعرفها. إيش إيش؟ أستاذ نسيتها. بنت بنات ثنتين يهوديات كانوا بيروحوا لعنا بيجوا لعنا بنقعد سوا بنجيب كان عنا طرش كثير. وزبدة تبع غنم حلال غنم حلال كثير ونعمل زبدة ويجوا نقول شو طيبين طيبين أكلات شو تحكوا معهم شو أي لغة عربية يفهموا عربي عربي مثلنا مثلنا عربي أبدا اليهود بيفهموا مظبوط طب أنا ساكن بأمريكا أنا فلسطين أنا ساكن بأمريكا أنا فلسطيني شو لازم أعمل أنا؟ أنت أنت لازم أفور أفور على مين؟ على أمريكا؟ لا يعني مش أفور على أمريكا أنت فيك تقنعهم تقنعهم كيف؟ كيف بدك تقنع امريكا؟ أيه. انه امريكا مين يقدر ياخذ من بلاد ما ياخذ بلادهم وينهجهم من مطرحهم وبيقعد مطرحهم يقبلوا أيه. يقبلوا يعني حدا يطلع امريكا لا طبعا لا بس ام احمد هون عم كان عم تقول لي لازم اسوق هل لازم؟ طب لا معلش لازم اسوق لان هن طايرين ضدنا لازم مثلا تقول لهم ممنوع دعم اسرائيل بالاسلحه الثقيله لانهم عم بيحاربوا شعبنا ايه شعبنا قاعد عم بتحاربوا اسرائيل باسلحه امريكا لازم يحبونا يعني؟ لازم يحبونا لازم يحبونا طبعا طيب احنا شعب مثل هالشعوب طيب ليش يحبوا اسرائيل مثلا اكثر منا؟ ليش عم بيمدوا اسرائيل؟ ومشان هالشعب كله يدمروه الشعب الفلسطيني هيك بدهن بدهن يقضوا على الشعب الفلسطيني In the summer of 1982, refugee camps in South Lebanon were subjected to bombs and artillery, unleashed by Israel, mostly paid for by America. The Palestinian survivors were forced to shelter in the orange groves where they had once worked. What happened in Lebanon had of course happened before, notably in the West Bank and Gaza. These territories were invaded by Israel in 1967 people were driven out of their homes and out of the refugee camps. Abu Jabir camp in Jericho once contained 40,000 people. Now, 2,000 live there. They hold on to Palestinian life in Palestine, a symbol of the will to national survival that today characterizes the drama of the West Bank and Gaza. A Jerusalem-based Palestinian theater group, Al Hakawati, tours the camps and villages, staging popular plays that enact the Palestinian situation. By creating their own characters, their own stereotypes, for their own reasons, Arabs are responding to and resisting all those stereotypes that have been produced in the West. Hakawati play is based on a remarkable satirical novel by Emil Habibi, political activist, journalist, and intellectual who lives in Haifa. <laughs> Habibi's character hears the Israeli radio announced in 1967 
the Palestinians must raise the white flag of surrender. The order is intended for inhabitants of the West Bank. He considers himself included and complies. But because he lives in Israel, in Haifa, his white flag is interpreted as an act of defiance. <laughs> Habibi's character, Al-Mutasha'il, the pest optimist, both pessimist and optimist, is half peasant, half mythological creature. His whole life consists in trying to live in an impossibly ironic situation. No matter what he does, he runs foul of Israeli rule. It is the very presence and survival of the Palestinian people that persistently trouble Israel. I see that the Palestinians want to restore their identity, which is very important to the Palestinian people. And this identity has been seriously threatened and on the verge of being completely abolished. So they want a state. Uh, the idea of a state is becoming uh, much more than an obsession to the Palestinians. It's, it's something, uh, a matter of death and life, because it's uh, no use to be there and having all what you need, and still you are nameless, without any identity. To maintain this, you have to have a state. What I see in the future, in the feasible future, as a possibility, which needs still a lot of work and action and arm struggle and political maneuvers and political uh, struggle and organizations, is a state next door to Israel. And this will not be the end of the struggle, in my opinion. But this might put an end to the armed struggle, to the armed conflict between Israel and Palestine. For my own self, you know, my commitment to the Palestinian struggle is partly, of course, because I believe in Palestinian self-determination and I'm Palestinian and so on, but also because I believe that Zionism is, with regard to the Palestinians, you know, uh, a, an inhuman ideology. And therefore, in my struggle against Zionism, I feel that I can't adopt an inhuman attitude True. towards my opponents. I mean, they're my opponents, but they're still human beings. So the great problem uh, for me, and I think for the Palestinian national movement, is our um, human sort of relationship with the Jews. How can we address the people in the state? How can we win them into our own side? How can we eventually implement our vision of the future, that is the creation of a one Palestinian state where Jews, Muslims, and Christians live together on equal footing. Take even Israel now as it is. 65% of the Jews of Israel are of Arab origin. And but they hate, they hate the Palestinians That's most. something else. Yeah. Now we are speaking in terms of being Arabs or non-Arabs. Yeah. But these people, they identify themselves with the Arab community. Yes. They sing their songs, eat their way of eating, yeah. uh, the same kind of food, uh, the folkloric dress. Yes. They are almost uh, the same thing. Yeah. And not only the Jews of Palestine, yeah. the Jews who came from Yemen, the Jews who came from Morocco, yeah. they have come with their Arab culture.
In the Israeli town of Kiryat Shmona, Jewish immigrants celebrate a wedding. They came from Egypt and Morocco, Jews returning to Zion. So this part of the world, Edward, as you know in history, has been a target for invasion and for people who came from abroad and stayed for years and years and years. And only those who accepted to become part, real part of Palestine, I mean, identified themselves with the country, with the people around it. They wanted to communicate with, not to live in a ghetto life. Only those which eventually became Arabs have remained in this part of the world. Those who insisted to behave as invaders, as military conquerors, as temporary resident to get whatever is there, it was the spices before, now it's the oil, uh, they left. When they found that they are no more getting anything, they simply left the country. They didn't like the way of life. Kiryat Shmona in northern Galilee was once called Khalsa. The people of Khalsa live in refugee camps in South Lebanon or are scattered throughout the world. Khalsa becomes Kiryat Shmona. The land is transformed. Newcomers make it their own and try to annihilate traces of the lives that were there before. But still, almost two million Palestinians do hold on to their place in Palestine. For them, to be and look like an Arab, do Arab things in the Arab way, intensify their resistance to the colonizing outsider. Israelis have in turn, it seems, chosen one of the ways of the West. Stronger armies, the enforced separation between Jew and non-Jew, extended conquests. Surely the humiliation, anger, and resistance will mount, even as daily life appears to proceed normally. The Palestinians live in the shadow of occupation, outnumbered and outorganized, incomparably weak in terms of power and resources. For all its development and resources, the modern Arab world of which the Palestinians are a part seems powerless to prevent Israeli encroachment. And despite the new ties between the Arabs and the West, the differences in power and the resulting misunderstandings are acute. Jerusalem is fantastic, is dreamlike, but it is also real, actual. Its existence in the Holy Land draws the visions as well as the designs of people. Its contemporary history, like that of the Orient, is a record of conflicting claims and stark divisions, rarely of harmonious sharing. Is it too soon to expect that these histories of blind prejudice and powerful fantasy can be balanced and perhaps resolved by a more enduring history of ordinary lives, of reconciliation and recognition. <laughs> 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 